that song that we just sang, Your Grace Finds Me, has this great line, it's there on a wedding day. And so I'd like you to do something with me. I'd like you to think of a particular wedding. It may be one that you were at recently, Uh, maybe you watched online, it could be your own wedding or a significant wedding, maybe even from some time ago. But just in your mind, pick a wedding and think about that wedding now. And what I want you to do is you're picturing, hopefully you can picture uh, the ceremony or the place. You can picture this wedding. And I want to ask you, where on that day did you see God's grace? Was it in the setting? Maybe it was a beautiful outdoor setting. Maybe it was in a church. And you can picture uh, just a beautiful stained glass or whatever it may be. The flowers, the aisle. Did you see God's grace in the ceremony? Was God's grace present in the scripture that was read or the music that was sung? The vows that were exchanged? Do you remember feeling God's presence and his blessing through any of those things? Did you see God's grace when you thought of the parents, of the bride or of the groom, the sacrifices that they made, thinking about the kind of faith it takes to entrust one of your precious children to another person? Did you see tears in their eyes, both tears of joy uh, and perhaps a little bit of tears of sadness? And did you sense God's grace there? Did you feel God's grace in the comfort that even though there was a loved one who wasn't able to be there because of COVID, because of death, that still God was present and their memories were there. Did you see God's grace in the bride as she stood ready to come be married to the groom, looking more beautiful than you had seen her look before? Did you recognize God's grace on the face of the groom as he sees his bride coming towards him and you sense God's blessing and favor on this couple. Did you feel God's grace in the celebration afterwards, the toasts that were made, the joy that was there? Weddings are a time of God's grace, his favor, his kindness, his blessing. It's times when we get to see him and we're reminded, thank you, Lord, for love. Thank you, Lord, for goodness. Thank you, Lord, for how you have created this world. We're in the book of Revelation and we're thinking about Jesus's return. And of all the ways that Jesus's return is described, there is one metaphor and one image that is more common than all the rest. And it's that of a wedding. And the idea is of Jesus being wed to his church, those who by faith have accepted him. And the metaphor is used really throughout the New Testament to focus on the idea that there is a coming wedding celebration. And when we think about God's grace, we think about the return of Jesus, there is imagery that the Bible uses to describe our experience of meeting Jesus face to face, of our being united with Jesus forever. 
that uses the language of a wedding. Now, to be honest, we don't know exactly in the scheme of the future where what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, where this wedding ceremony takes place in time. But it is described for us in Revelation 19, which is the passage that we're in today. And so today is our day to think about the imagery of a wedding as it relates to Jesus' return and our connection to him. Now, a couple of caveats as we launch into this study. Number one, the imagery of a wedding is just that. It's imagery. It's a metaphor. So we don't want to take all the stuff that's true about human weddings and somehow impose that on what's coming in the future. We don't got to try to figure out, well, is there going to be an aisle and flowers and bridesmaids and groomsmen? It's an image. And the thing that is a most salient is the idea in a wedding... The bride and the groom are seeing each other face to face in a unique and new way. And then on that day, we will see Jesus face to face, and that will be something unique and powerful. Likewise, in a wedding, a a man and a woman are coming together to be together in a permanent union going forward. Likewise, what we call the marriage supper of the Lamb or our relationship with Jesus, this wedding day is an image or a metaphor or a symbol for the fact that we are going to be united with Jesus for eternity. So we don't want to get caught up in all the details about how ceremonies work because it is just an image and a metaphor. The second caveat is that this is not about and it is not affirming human marriage. Now, of course, God's for human marriage. I'm for human marriage. But that's not what this is about. Jesus tells us that human marriage is temporary. And that when Jesus returns and we are resurrected from the dead, we will be like the angels. There will be no marriage. We will not be given in marriage and marriage will not be part of the eternal state. So when I speak today and we think today about a wedding, please don't hear that as somehow emphasizing or prioritizing human marriage. This is something, regardless of what your marital status is, whether you are single, married, divorced, widowed, this is about our personal relationship with Jesus and our relationship corporately with Jesus. And so talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb is not about affirming marriage in the here and now. It's about using the idea of a wedding to help us think through our relationship with Jesus. So having said that, we want to think about this wedding that's coming in the future. And I'd like to invite you to take a Bible and turn not to the book of Revelation, but to the book of John chapter 2. We'll get to Revelation 19, but you can't have a wedding without an engagement. And so we're going to start first with the engagement, and then we're going to look at the wedding. In John 2, which is page 861 in the church Bibles, John 2, what we have is Jesus' 
first miracle recorded for us that he did in his first coming on earth. I think it's no accident that Jesus planned for this miracle to take place at a wedding. And that as we think about the image of a wedding, this is an appropriate place to start, John 2, and Jesus' very first miracle. So what I'm gonna do, and we haven't really been in the Gospels in a while because we've been seeing Jesus in the book of Revelation. So I'm gonna read us this story and then I'm gonna play us a clip. Uh, It's from the TV show, The Chosen, which is a really powerful sort of reenactment of many of these stories. And we're gonna see a little clip from this story. And the purpose is, is to kind of hear afresh this story and to feel it maybe in a unique and different way. And so John 2 starting in verse one. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. This is a huge, humiliating social problem. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Everyone, listen. I have something I would like to say. I would like to address the bridegroom and the bride families. At every wedding I've ever overseen, they serve the best wine first. And then... When the people have drunk freely, much later in the feast, they serve the poorer wine, the cheap stuff. (laughs) Because by then, who is going to notice? (laughs) Am I right? But you, you have chosen now to serve the best wine I have ever tasted. Let us thank them for this unnecessary but honorable gesture. Usher, son of Rafi and Dinah, to Sarah, daughter of Abner and Hila, be as pure and as fruitful as this wine. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. To Asher and Sarah. something wrong? Yes. I was. (laughs) 
Now, partly I wanted to show you that clip because I think that show is fantastic. I cry my way through most of the episodes. Uh, I just think there's something incredibly powerful about thinking about Jesus actually being on the earth, about thinking about him. He is a human. And like him showing up at weddings, him doing kind things like that, like I just find that very moving and powerful. But I also wanted to show you the clip because although, you know, and if you watch the whole episode, it's really great. They do a great job of setting up, you know, like why this might be so humiliating and you can kind of sense you've got parents of the, of the groom there, parents of the bride. A lot of it's conjecture as to, you know, who these people are and how this all works. But I just think they do a really nice job of kind of setting it up so that you get to this moment and it's a real miracle. Like it's a powerful thing uh, and it's a real blessing. And, and it's easy to forget we read these stories. These are people, And this is a terribly difficult moment and Jesus rescues them from it. And so it's really powerful. But the reason I showed you this clip and I know that you might not know who is this person, who is that person. You probably picked out who Mary was and you probably were able to figure out who Jesus was. You probably could figure out the bride's parents and the groom's parents and and, and sort of who was involved. But the thing I hoped you noticed was that this was a private miracle. Meaning the master of the banquet doesn't know what's happened. The groom's parents don't really know what's happened. The bride's parents don't know what's happened. And the guests at the wedding don't know what's happened. It's a private miracle in the sense of there's only a few people who even know that a miracle has happened. Now Jesus will in the future from John 2 have some public miracles. Most of them will be like raising Lazarus from the grave. This is an extremely public miracle. There's lots of people around. Jesus is standing there, there's crowds there, and he calls Lazarus out of the grave. And people who are there see a dead man come back out of the grave alive. And if you weren't there, you heard about it immediately, like words spread all over the place. That's a very public miracle. This one is not, which by the way is what Jesus means when he says that his time hasn't come. He doesn't mean that he's not time for him to be kind yet. He's kind all the time. It just means it's not come for him to do public miracles. And so this is a very private miracle. And in fact, while it seems to be done for the bride and the groom and the parents and all of that, it's really done for the purpose of his disciples. Look at verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Jesus did this miracle not just to help this family and this wedding. He did this to show himself to his disciples. In many ways, we could describe what's happening in John 2 as an engagement You see, weddings are more public affairs. Engagements are more private affairs. This is ultimately between Jesus and his disciples. And what happens during an engagement is you have a proposal. You have one person saying to another person, this is who I am and I'm inviting you to come be in a relationship with me. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is proposing, if you will, to these disciples. He's saying to them, this is who I am and this is what I am asking of you. You can hear what he's asking in Mary's language when she says, do whatever he tells you to do. 
This is a sign of what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. Jesus invites us to come and follow him, to go where he leads, to do what he tells us to do. And Jesus, to these disciples, makes clear what it is that he's offering to them. An infinite supply of life. Metaphorically speaking, with Jesus, the wine never runs out. That what he is offering to these disciples is life. Life in abundance. Life in which it just keeps getting more and more and more. It's interesting that what Jesus is actually offering these disciples is life for eternity. Now, this is hard to grasp. But not plateaued life for eternity. Life that gets better and better and better and better for eternity. That's why the better wine comes later. It's a sign that with Jesus, the future is always better than the present even in heaven, hard to grasp. And what Jesus is essentially doing is he is proposing. He is offering to the disciples a relationship. You come follow me, I will be connected to you, and I will give you eternal life. And these disciples accept. By the way, this is the exact same offer he makes to you and I today. This is the exact same thing. That today, when you hear John 2 being read, what you should hear is not a historical story. It is historical. What you should hear is God saying to you, I love you. That God revealing this story to you today as a proposal. And he is offering to you the exact same thing he is offering to them. If you will come follow me, I will give you life, eternal life. That is the proposal in the relationship, you connected to Jesus and Jesus is connected to you. We come and follow him and he gives us never ending life, life that gets better and better and better for eternity. And if today you hear Jesus saying that to you, which you should, if you respond, this is what it means to become a Christian. It's an establishing of a relationship with God. It's not a set of rules. It's not an idea. It's not a religion. It is a person, Jesus, saying to you this morning, come marry me. He's proposing You say, well, how does somebody accept? Well, how do you accept a marriage proposal? You just say yes, right? If one person proposes to another person and says, will you marry me? How do you become engaged? You just simply say yes. This morning, Jesus is offering to you a relationship. He is proposing a relationship to you. And if this morning in your heart, you simply say, yes, then you become a Christian. This is how it works. Notice the disciples don't say anything out loud. 
They simply see what is being offered and they choose to accept. And if you this morning, in your heart, the quiet of your heart, Jesus, who is both human and God, sees what is in your heart. If today you hear him saying, come follow me and I will give you eternal life. If in your heart you say, okay, I accept. You are now engaged. Engaged with Jesus. Connected to Jesus. And what that means for you today and for every one of the rest of us who have already accepted that proposal, it means there's a wedding coming. And so let's turn over to Revelation 19 and let's look at the wedding that's coming. Revelation 19 page 1002 in the church Bibles, the last couple of pages of the Bible. Now as we return, let me remind you what we are not going to see. We're not going to see lots of details about the ceremony. Because again, this is a metaphor in an image. I don't happen to believe that all Christians are going to all gather together in one big place and walk down some sort of giant cosmic aisle and Jesus is going to be waiting at the end of the aisle and there's going to be vows exchanged. It's a metaphor and an image. And so there are not lots of details about the ceremony because the ceremony is not really the point. The emphasis in Revelation 19 is actually on the preparations that are making the wedding possible. And in Revelation 19, there are three things that God has done that are in focus as we think about this wedding that's coming in the future. The first is in verses one to four. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants and they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, amen, hallelujah. Now it might seem strange to start a wedding with the celebration of the destruction of other people or of other things. But it's not at all strange if you think about it from this point of view. If you've ever been to a wedding where you knew the bride or the groom before they met the person they're marrying, maybe it's a child of yours, maybe it was a grandchild of yours, a friend, somebody that you've known before they got married, and that person happened to be dating someone who was terrible for them. And you knew it. And you could see it. And you thought to yourself, oh Lord, please do not let those two get married. And you could see the damage and the destruction that were going to come. Or if you yourself were in a dysfunctional, abusive, bad relationship with someone else, If you end up at a wedding marrying the right person, one of the great things to celebrate is that you did not marry the wrong people. What's happening here is God is eliminating the suitors. 
He is getting rid of all of the bad boyfriends and girlfriends, all of the possible attractions for our affections, and the beginning of the wedding celebration is, thanks be to God that Satan, this world, sin, our own evil desires, all the things you and I thought would make for a good mate, all the things, oh, if we just had enough money, if we had enough power, if we had enough fame, if we had enough comfort in life, if only we could find a way to build our business, to get into the right school, if we could only find a way to in, uh, enhance the pleasures of life, to satisfy the cravings of our soul. And God looks at all those things, power, money, success, the systems of the world, the countries of the, of the world in which we live, all of the different things we talked about last week, capitalism and socialism and democracy and all of those things that are fighting for our affections the things of this world when they are finally destroyed there is a celebration because none of those things were going to love us in return and then if we spent our whole life pursuing sexual immorality or pursuing money or pursuing fame or pursuing anger and revenge all we were going to end up being is destroyed and we would find ourselves in an abusive, dysfunctional, horrendous marriage. And so the first thing that is celebrated at the marriage supper of the Lamb, thanks be to God, he has destroyed all that stuff. The Revelation 16, 17, and 18 is God finally pouring out his wrath on the people the cities and the systems of this world that we're fighting so hard for our affections. And that one of the kindest things God did was get us out of some pretty dysfunctional relationships. One of the things I find just even slightly awkward when I meet with couples to talk about their stories, to get ready to do a ceremony for them, is sometimes previous boyfriends or girlfriends show up in those stories. And you can always feel, because it's part of the story, and you can always feel a little bit of the, well, I'm grateful for what the Lord did, but in getting me out of that relationship to get me into this relationship. And in a wedding, one of the great joys, if you know and love the bride or know and love the groom and you know their history, to think to yourself, thank you, Jesus, for answering prayers and putting them with the right person. And at the marriage supper of the Lamb, what we're celebrating is the groom we are walking down the aisle to be with forever. Is the one who loves us for eternity. The only one who ever put our interests above their own. The only one who chose gentleness and humility and kindness and faithfulness and goodness and righteousness. And what we are walking down the aisle to marry is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who loves us, loves us, and gave his life for us. And we celebrate on that day that all the dysfunctional previous relationships we had, all the things we chased after, that all those things are gone. They're no longer even a possibility for us to chase after. Thanks be to God. The second thing that God has done in preparation for this great wedding celebration, verse seven, 
Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come, and then here's our phrase, and his bride has made herself ready. This is actually an allusion to Zechariah chapter three. And in Zechariah chapter three, Joshua the high priest represents the children of Israel and himself in the heavenly council. And the angel of the Lord is interacting with Joshua and this is the conversation. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. See, the point is, it's not just that there were other suitors for our affections. The truth of the matter is, we pursued those other lovers. That we ran after and did things that were unfaithful that we engage in sinful behavior, that we would be humiliated if it was ever brought up on our wedding day, that there is stuff from our past, activities we got involved in, stuff that we should have done that we didn't do, that if anybody were to tell that story on our wedding day, it would be humiliating. But God, who is rich in mercy and in love, has chosen not to give us justice, not what we deserve, but mercy. That he's chosen to have Jesus die for our sins. I mean, after all, if one fiance is unfaithful, who suffers? The other fiance. That Jesus has borne our sins, our unfaithfulness. He has suffered because of our wrongdoing. And God has chosen to lay on him all our junk. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, all of it is forgiven. And on the day of that ceremony, there's not going to be any stories from our past. There's not going to be any, why did you do this and why didn't you do that? The good news is, is that God has made a covenant that cannot be broken. That he is sealed in the blood of Jesus. That he has sworn an oath and he cannot lie that he will forgive our sins and remember them no more. And that all our unfaithfulness, all our failures, on that wedding day, no one will remember them. We might remember them now, but God does not. And we celebrate the fact that on that day, we're not gonna be dressed in clothing of anger or lust or gossip or hatred or envy or jealousy or laziness, all that stuff, all those mistakes, all the wrong thoughts, all the stuff, forgiven, forgotten, gone. Which leads to the third thing we're celebrating. Verse eight, fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Perhaps one of the things you found God's grace in at that wedding that you might have pictured in your mind is that perhaps you got a glimpse at that wedding of the love that the bride and the groom had already shown to one another during their dating or engagement periods. Maybe you heard stories either through the ceremony or some of the toasts or things that people said. Maybe you heard a story about how the bride did such a great job welcoming the groom's family as being part of her own family. 
Maybe you heard a story about how the groom walked with the bride through some very difficult health circumstances. Or how the bride walked with the groom through a time of depression. Or how the groom believed in the bride when nobody else did and stuck by her when nobody else did. And what you hear is that these two have already demonstrated in their relationship love for one another. And one of the beauties and the grace that takes place at a wedding is this is not the first time these two people have met. That they have a history of showing and demonstrating love for one another. So it will be at the great wedding of Jesus and his bride, us, those who believe in him. Now, for Jesus' part, there is going to be plenty to say to talk about how he has loved us. And all of heaven will resound with the story of how he died for us, willingly, how he became human for us, how he suffered for us, how even today, right now, at this very moment, he is in heaven praying for each and every one of us that he's walked alongside of us, that he has never abandoned us, that he has given us his spirit, there will be plenty of things to say about how Jesus loved us. But here's the good news for us. There's also gonna be some stuff to say about how we have loved Jesus. That's what verse eight is talking about. That God in his kindness has not left us naked on our wedding day. Yes, he's taken away the dirty clothes, but he has replaced them with beautiful, clean, a bride's dress that is full of the righteous acts of God's people. That God has given to us gifts and talents and abilities and energy and time. That he has given to us his spirit. That he created good deeds before we were even born for us to do. Why? So on that wedding day, we would not stand there naked. That eternity and heaven will be able to say, and this is what the bride did for Jesus. And this is how the bride stuck with Jesus when the world rejected him. And this is how the bride chose to share Jesus with a non-Christian world. And this is how the bride continued to do these things for Jesus and continued to obey even when it was difficult. This is how the bride stuck with Jesus even when we're exhausted and tired and we don't think we can go on. This is how we continue to try to be faithful in the midst of persecution and suffering and difficulty and the weaknesses of being human. And what God has done is he has caused us to do good things so that on that day we're not embarrassed. That we really are a bride, beautifully dressed, coming for her husband. Can you picture the ceremony? Whatever wedding you had in your mind before, imagine God planning the wedding. And imagine in the infinite resources. And imagine how he wants to lavish on his son Jesus the wedding of weddings. And imagine how he wants to give to us, his children, the wedding of weddings. And we're gonna be there celebrating that all other potential suitors for our affections are all gone. There are no more former boyfriends or girlfriends, no more dysfunctional relationships, none of the toxic stuff. We're gonna celebrate that all the things that we did as part of those bad relationships, completely, totally forgiven, forgotten, and gone. Nobody mentions the bride's sins on her day. And on this day, all of them are gone. 
and coming down dressed in good deeds that God prepared for us to do, that he designed a dress for us to wear. It's a beautiful image of what it will be like to see Jesus face to face, to be connected to him for eternity. Amen. So why the passage for today though? What does God want to say to us today? The wedding's in the future. This is not, today is not the wedding day. Today might be your engagement day. Hallelujah if it is. But it's not the wedding day. So why are we talking about the wedding today? Not just because it's the next passage. What does God want to accomplish? I have a wedding that I'm scheduled to do uh, later this year. And the interesting thing about thinking about the imagery of weddings is is that uh, Lisa and I have already started meeting with the couple. They're already hard at work getting ready for the wedding. We've done some premarital counseling with them. We've talked about the ceremony. We've tried to plan out some of the different things, listen to their story, work through some of these things. Why? Because weddings don't plan themselves. You don't show up on a wedding day and go, oh yeah, somehow food got here. And oh, look, someone brought flowers. I wonder how that happened. And you don't just go, well, I guess we'll say some vows to one another. Weddings don't happen without preparation and work for that wedding. And even though it is a long way off, the couple is focused on the fact that day is coming. So why is God reminding us that we have a wedding coming? So that we will be prepared for it when it arrives. For many of us, we got engaged perhaps some time ago. And maybe when we first got engaged to Jesus, when we first heard the fact that there is the God of the universe who loves us, who wants to give us eternal life, our response was that of a person overwhelmed with love to say, yes, please, you'd accept me with all my past and all my failures and all my mistakes, and you would bestow on me eternal life, and you'll be with me forever, and we're overwhelmed with gratitude. And we say yes to Jesus, and we launch into this thing, and we think, wow, this is amazing. And then we realize, oh, it's a long engagement. And it's kind of a long distance relationship. And that's hard. And we start thinking to ourselves, well, I'll get more serious about the wedding when we get closer. And right now I want to take advantage of the fact that I'm not married yet and I can go off and do what I want to do. And some of us, if we're honest, are actually living as if we're in a decades long bachelor party or bachelorette party. And we're not thinking about the wedding that's coming, we're thinking about all the fun that we can have now and the wedding too. And we think, oh yeah, best of both worlds. Enjoy it all now, and then comes the wedding. Which is why Jesus opens the book of Revelation with a message to the church at Ephesus, which is also a message to Calvary Church in Grand Rapids in Revelation 2. He says, yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. For any engaged couple, it's helpful to be reminded, there is a wedding day coming. You want to put in the work now. You don't want to ignore that it's happening. You see, today is Palm Sunday. And if I were going to fit Palm Sunday into this huge wedding metaphor that I'm trying to use, 
I would say Palm Sunday is like a wedding shower. It's not the wedding. But when Jesus came to Jerusalem, there were wedding-like things that happened. People began to acknowledge, oh, this is the Lord. And people began to celebrate that he was there. But just like you go to a wedding shower, that's supposed to be a reminder. Oh yeah, the wedding's coming. And there's some nice things that happen at the wedding shower. There's some gifts and other things that happen. But it's not really a wedding. Why? Because they're not married yet. And the point is, is Palm Sunday is a reminder. Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem. And when he comes back to Jerusalem... He's not coming alone. He's coming with us. He's coming with a bride. And that Palm Sunday is a reminder the wedding is coming. And what it's supposed to do for you and me is to remind us, look, we've set our hearts on things of this earth. We're going after stuff that's not going to matter one lick on that day. We're trying to accomplish stuff that's going to be destroyed before we get to that day. We're chasing after lovers that we don't want to have anything to do with and that God is going to destroy and that we would be embarrassed if they showed up to our wedding. And Jesus says, look, remember your first love. Remember where your heart is supposed to be. And some of us are more concerned with the stuff going on on this earth. And some of us are more concerned and upset and fighting about this and striving for that and arguing about this and sending emails about that. All this stuff, and Jesus says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Yes, between now and the wedding, you still gotta go to work. Yeah, you still gotta go to school. Yeah, you still gotta pay bills. There's all sorts of stuff. But if your mind is fixed on the wedding day, you're going to do the stuff that is necessary to get ready for that day. Please, I am not trying to harm you. I am trying to help you. Listen to what I am saying. Every good deed that you do now, you are going to be glad you spent the time doing it on the wedding day. And every hour you spend pursuing other lovers that are going to just be dysfunctional and damaging and who will ultimately be destroyed is simply a waste of time. Yes, you won't have to give an account on that wedding day because you will be forgiven, but you won't have done anything to prepare for the wedding because you're busy doing all the rest of this other stuff. And so Jesus just gives us a gentle reminder today. I know it may feel like the wedding's a long way off, but as with all weddings, it'll be here sooner than you think it will. And the encouragement is, be prepared. The passage closes with, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. If you heard God inviting you today and you say yes, this eternal blessing will be yours. It also closes with blessed are those who hold on to the testimony of Jesus. If you're already engaged to Jesus and you keep fighting and holding on to that day that's coming, you keep working for that wedding, it will go well. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you
for reminding us that a wedding is coming. We've been an unfaithful fiance in many ways. Forgive us for those things. Help us to set our minds on what is coming in the future. Thank you that in your grace and mercy you have chosen to love us and to be connected to us for eternity. For those even now, still considering the proposal, Lord, I pray that they would say yes. And for those of us who have said yes, help us to be single-minded in our devotion to being prepared for that day. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.